Hey everybody, I'm Mike, I'm one of the pastors here. Family wounds are slow to heal. Those are some of the opening words to the chapters from Max Lucado's book, You'll Get Through This, that reference the passages we're gonna be looking at today. And it's true. In fact, they're not only slow to heal, but it's possible to not even experience healing from those family wounds if we don't go through a process in order to actually have some healing. This is particularly true for those wounds that happen in our childhood. Things like abandonment, abuse, bullying, favoritism from a parent, or maybe a broken family where one of the parents isn't around. These kinds of things have a lasting effect on us. I'm willing to bet that many of you, most of you have probably experienced some of those kinds of wounds. From, and likely it came from your childhood. Now, psychologically, when we have those events in our lives, they can become internal objects for us that affect the way that we relate to other people and to the circumstances around us. And it's because there's something internal with, within us that has not been reconciled. So what we try to do is get the rest of the world and people to reconcile to it, to that thing that is unreconciled within us. And what ends up happening is we repeat a lot of the same things that we actually experienced ourselves. Not always in the same way, but in a lot of the root ways. Now, you're probably not tuning in for a psychology lesson, and that's good because I'm nowhere near qualified to give you one. But what I find interesting about that information is that unreconciled things in our lives, whether we're talking about internal things or whether we're talking about our relationships, end up causing problems and grief in our life. And our families end up being at the heart of that so often which is really interesting when you think about um, uh, the story of Joseph that we've been going through, because that guy's family is messed up. I mean, Jacob, his dad, married one woman in order to later marry his sister, who he really loved. And those two sisters, they were kind of in competition for, with one another to, for, uh, for who could bear the most kids. And Jacob, in that process, ended up sleeping with each of their servants in order to appease them and have more kids. Now, eventually his favorite wife died giving birth to Benjamin, one of his favorite kids. And Jacob, he certainly played favorites with his kids so that it was really obvious that he loved some more than others, mostly Joseph. And when there was conflict between Joseph and his brothers, Jacob didn't handle the situation. Conflict turned into hatred, and hatred gave birth to evil. And Joseph's brothers conspired against him, first to kill him, and then after some more thought instead, just to sell him for some silver so that he could be taken away to a foreign land as a slave. He was just 17 at the time. He was still developing as a person. He was just a boy. Talk about trauma. Talk about broken relationships, talk about internal and external things being unreconciled. And that kind of hurt and pain stays with a person. It affects them in personal ways. 
Now, we don't need to get into the psychology of this whole family tree and this whole situation, but we at least need to understand the emotional turmoil was real in order for us to enter into our passage for today. So we're in this series right now, You'll Get Through This, which goes through the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis, and it's connected to our big read right now, which is by Max Lucado, and it's also called You'll Get Through This. Now today we're covering a pretty big chunk of scripture, Genesis 42 through 44. So we're gonna start off by reading the first part, the first 17 verses of Genesis 42, and then I'm just gonna kinda continue to tell the story a little bit and summarize what happens in the rest of that section. So here we go, if you've got a Bible, if you've got a screen you can pull it up on, Genesis 42 is where we're starting now. When Jacob learned that there was a grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You're spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of the one man, of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you've come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said, said to them, It is just as I told you. You are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. Well, the story goes on. Instead of sending one brother back to Canaan, he ends up keeping one, Simeon, and sending the rest. The brothers recognize that this may, well, uh, may be punishment for the, for the, okay, let's stop because we can go back right to that last section there. Ah. Too much. What's that? It's moved so far. It's moved so far, Yeah. Uh, yeah, 
the I think the problem in my mind is that this part should just be me telling a story and not looking down at all, but it's just not in my head. So people don't know that that's true. I certainly don't and I laugh it twice. So. <laughs> okay, good to know. All right. Well, the story goes on from there. Instead of sending one brother back to Canaan to get Benjamin, Joseph ends up keeping one as a prisoner and sending the rest back to Canaan. The brothers recognize that this might be punishment for what they had done to Joseph in the past. And the whole time, Joseph, he's like wrestling with his emotions. He's crying. He's, he's overwhelmed by the situation. But he still, he sends the silver that the brothers bought to, brought to buy grain, he sends it back with them to Canaan. The brothers return to Jacob, who just has pity on himself. And he says, everything is against me. And he refuses to send Benjamin. So no one goes back to Canaan. They're not going to go back without Benjamin until they run out of food again. And then Judah finally convinces Jacob to let Benjamin go down to Egypt. They take extra supplies, they take extra money, they do all they can to make this a successful trip. They arrive and Joseph again is just overwhelmed with emotion as he's seen his brothers and now Benjamin, his little brother as well. He takes them all to a house, his house for a meal. And then he frees them all to go back to Canaan, except that he tricks them. He sets a trap so that Benjamin is falsely accused of stealing. And that way, Benjamin ends up having to stay in Egypt as a prisoner. Well, you can just imagine Jacob's reaction as the brothers get back to Canaan. And the one who Jacob was so concerned about isn't with them any longer. Now, other than in the Psalms, it's not often that we get a picture quite like this of somebody's emotions in the Bible. Usually the Bible kind of glosses over those things a little bit. But here we see it with Joseph. He's crying multiple times in the story. It says that he's crying. He's feeling the weight of this moment, seeing his brothers, hearing them talk about him and his father and Benjamin. And then he tests them. He puts them in a situation that causes them anxiety and fear. He starts off more harsh. It says that he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. And he came up with a pretty harsh scenario where he was going to keep one, uh, he was going to keep all of them and then just send one of them back. But then he vacillates a little bit. And on the third day, he says, I fear God. And he makes it a little bit easier for them. He softens up a little bit. You get this sense that he's just wrestling with himself in this scenario. These are broken relationships, which has been the story since the beginning of Genesis. Adam and Eve, they go from these intimate partners that are meant to rule over creation together to those who have to cover up around each other, to hide parts of themselves from one another. And their problems, their brokenness, it's bred into their offspring. One son, Cain, kills another, Abel, hatred within the family. And from there on out, all of the episodes that follow depict broken relationship after broken relationship. And Joseph's story is a swirl of them. 
The same holds true for us today. And just as Adam and Eve had to cover themselves, and just as Joseph hides who he is from his brothers, we hide parts of ourselves today, right? Okay, maybe that's not quite what I meant. We do, though, experience so much of the same things today. Broken relationships, unreconciled tensions internally, externally. It seems honestly like it's pretty hard to be human and not have some kind of broken relationship, to not have some unreconciled spaces in our lives. We see it in our lives. We experience it individually. I know I've experienced it in my family. I'm gonna tell you a few stories from my family today, and they're personal stories. And you might feel the temptation to judge some people in my family or to look down on them a little bit when I tell you these stories, but there's no use pretending any of us are perfect. So have some grace as you listen and realize too that although I don't do anything terrible in these stories, I have plenty of other stories I could tell you where I do. So my parents were divorced when I was pretty young, maybe four or five, and it was a bitter, bitter divorce, complete with custody battles, court cases, words that I can't say in church right now, manipulation of the kids. I remember feeling that from both of my parents. When the legal battles stopped, my parents completely stopped talking to each other. And my dad refused to see us kids again. Well, several years went by and I was at the mall with my mom and my sister. And the two of them started fighting, which was pretty typical. And it got to a point where it was about to boil over. And my mom suddenly says, that's it. I'm taking you to your dad's. And we walked quietly back to the car. And I think my sister and I were just in shock. We hadn't seen our dad in years. And we drove straight from the mall to my dad's house. And I can still picture the moment pulling up to his house that day. And then he and my mom negotiated what it would be like to leave my sister there at the house while I played with my stepbrothers. And once things were figured out, my mom got in the car and I got in the car and we left and we left my sister there. And my mom told me that in some part of that conversation with my dad, he said, don't expect me to start seeing Michael again. And it was several years before I ever saw him again. That kind of rejection from a parent sticks with a child. It sticks with a person into adulthood. It not only breaks the relationship between father and son, but it breaks the way a person relates to himself, to God, to others. Now, my dad has his own story, his own circumstances, his own brokenness. He's a part of what we're all a part of. It's what I contribute to the relationships around me. It's likely what you contribute to the relationships around you. It started with Adam and Eve, and it's been carried through to today. And we see it keenly in Joseph's story, broken relationships that are in need of reconciliation. Now, at this moment in the stories, Joseph is concealing himself from his brothers, wrestling through his emotions and even his actions. We're all waiting to see, is, 
Is he going to hold on to the bitterness? Is he going to hate his brothers like they hated him? Is he going to take revenge on them? Because he certainly could. He has the power to do so. How about for you and me? Are we going to hold on to that bitterness? Are we going to let our hearts be filled with hatred? I know hate is a strong word. We don't like to use the word hate in our house. My kids call it the H word. But that's really what forms in our hearts when we hold on to bitterness in our broken relationships. And it's a harmful thing, but not in the way that we want it to be. Here's a cartoon that I have for you. The man sitting at his desk answering the phone. He says, oh, not much. Just sitting here sifting through an old scrapbook of past injustices and imagined slights. When we hold on to bitterness and hatred, the person we hurt most is ourselves. We hope the other person is bothered by it, but most often they don't even notice it. It just affects us. That's the game that the devil plays and one that we so often fall into. Ephesians 4 says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give him him an opportunity. Don't let him take advantage because that's where he'll do it. It's one of his primary schemes. The devil is out to break relationships. God, on the other hand, he moved heaven and earth to heal broken relationships. As soon as the original break happened between Adam and Eve, God put a plan in motion to bring reconciliation. Reconciliation is at the heart of who God is. Now, some people see this as the theme in the whole Bible that ties everything together. This consistent movement of God working out his plan of reconciliation which we are to live out as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, some of Jesus' most quintessential teachings, he says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. This connection between our relationship with God and relationship with the people around us. The problem is reconciling isn't easy. You probably already know that. I mean, it's not easy to heal wounded relationships. That's why we see in this passage passage, Joseph going back and forth and how he's treating his brothers. It's kind of like one step forward and two steps back. It's it's not quick or easy. Reconciliation is a process, both internally and relationally. It takes time and effort to work through it. And the next time I saw my dad was on my 18th birthday. He came into Safeway where I was working at the time and he was coming through my line and I had to kind of look at first, is that my dad? It'd been so long since I'd seen him. I I wasn't positive at first. We talked a bit and said that we would keep in touch. And we did for a few years. Um, We'd talk on birthdays and holidays and just kind of get to know each other a little bit. But then there was another falling out. My sister was getting married 
And there was conflict between her and my dad's husband, or my dad's wife, excuse me. And my dad ended up not going to the wedding. And that was followed by many more years of no contact. One step forward, two steps back. It's a process. Now look, we can talk about how difficult reconciliation is and how important it is all day, but I think you get it. But eventually we actually have to do it. You've got to make some movement toward it. We can't just passively wait for it to happen. I think ultimately, in order for this work of reconciliation to be done, there are a few key elements that need to take place. And this could be elaborated on a lot, but just a few key things. One is a, we've got to address the hurts that we've experienced. If you've experienced a lot of hurt in a relationship, you've got to address that hurt. Two, we've got to recognize how we've hurt others. Maybe we are someone who has caused a lot of pain for other people. We need to acknowledge that and recognize that. And last, we need to offer and or accept forgiveness in the relationship. That's in order for reconciliation to happen. Now, let me lay out for you the perfect roadmap of reconciliation from the story of Joseph. I'm just joking. It's not there. There are actually very few great human examples in the Bible. And Joseph's a pretty good guy, but he's not perfect. And ultimately, this passage isn't trying to teach us how to be reconciled with other people. I mean, I think that we can see that Joseph is trying to deal with the hurt that he's experienced. There are all these times where his emotions are brought out, seven times where it says that he's crying or he's trying not to cry, so he's dealing with his emotions. And there's some indication that Joseph's brothers recognize the pain that they've caused when they say, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. But I don't know if that really counts. I mean, I think they're just really more afraid than anything else. What we do eventually see is Joseph offering forgiveness to his brothers. He says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. It was a process to get him to that point. But he got there when he could, where he got to that point where he could forgive them, even to the point of saying, don't be angry with yourselves. This is where Joseph is an example for us. He's offering the kind of undeserved forgiveness that God offers us in Christ. In the book of Colossians, it says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, just a little side comment that Joseph is forgiving people who abused him. But please recognize that if you are in an abusive relationship, patterns of abuse and forgiveness are not the right way to go. 
there are circumstances where reconciliation is the path and there are circumstances where you need to protect yourself. So eventually my dad came back around again. There were grandkids in the picture and my dad wanted to be a part of that. He spoke to my sister and I individually. He apologized to each one of us for not being present in our lives. We forgave him and our relationships have grown stronger and stronger over the years. I think my childhood though, and not just this experience, but others as well still affect who I am, but there's reconciliation there. And there's joy and healing in being together. Now, I'm gonna shift gears here just a bit. I've highlighted all these troubles with Joseph's family, the broken relationships that are there, the need for reconciliation within those relationships, but that's not really the focus of this passage. The author isn't really trying to teach us about our broken relationships and how we reconcile interpersonally. That's why there isn't a step-by-step step process you know, from the passage for us to learn from. The passage has much more to do with who God is and what he is working out in his plan. And what we see of God in this passage is that he is working out reconciliation. Remember, reconciliation is at the heart of who God is. Once broken relationships kind of became the in vogue thing for God's human creation, he began putting a, place, a plan in place to bring reconciliation. And not just an individual reconciliation. Colossians 1 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, him being Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He's working on a major reconciliation project. And it actually shows up right here in this passage. In fact, the whole Joseph story is moving toward this reconciliation from God. There's this really intricate structure featured in this story that pinpoints the events of Genesis 43. The structure is called a chiasm, chiasm excuse me, and this is how it works. There are these episodes through the Joseph story that are related by either theme or language. And the related episodes start on the two ends of the story and then work their way in. So at the beginning and the end of the story, there's a repeated time span of 17 years. Joseph lives 17 years under the protection of Jacob's house. And then Jacob lives 17 years under the protection of Joseph's house. Moving in a little bit on each end of the story, Joseph is enslaved to an Egyptian. And then later, Joseph enslaves all of the Egyptians. Moving in a little further, there are these repeated episodes of the brothers going down to Egypt and repeated episodes of the brothers bowing down to Joseph. And then repeated episodes of Jacob being deprived of children and agonizing over Benjamin. Now, there are so many more details to all of this, but I mostly I just want you to see that there is an intentional structure to the whole story that finds its pinnacle in the first part of chapter 43, where Judah offers to, to bear the blame 
with Jacob if anything happens to his precious son, Benjamin. It says, I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Now, Judah actually plays a really unique role in this whole story. It's his idea in Genesis 37 that saves Joseph's life, sending him into slavery rather than dying. It's his birth line that is really oddly preserved in Genesis 38. And it's his willingness to take responsibility in Genesis 43 that brings Benjamin back down to Egypt. And at the end, when Jacob is blessing his sons in Genesis 49, it's of Judah that he says, your father's sons will bow down to you. Now wait, I thought everybody was bowing down to Joseph, not Judah. Well, in the story, yes, everyone bows down to Joseph. But in the structure that's coming out here, it is pointing out that someone from the line of Judah is going to be very important and everybody is going to bow down to him. And for those of you who are a little more familiar with the Bible, you can probably guess that that's going to be the Messiah, the Christ, the promised reconciler of God, the one who will reconcile all things to himself, the one who will reconcile you to God. The whole work of Genesis is pointing forward toward that. Reconciliation is at the heart of who God is, and it's woven throughout the story of Scripture, not just in Joseph being reconciled to his brothers, but in God healing our broken relationship with him. He did everything for reconciliation. In the book of Romans, it reads, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Our reconciliation starts with Jesus. As we experience that reconciliation, it paves the way for us to be reconciled with one another. If you haven't experienced that reconciliation with Jesus, you can. It's available to you. God wants that. God wants you. He wants to be reconciled with you. Okay, one more family story for you. My family has never been very affectionate with one another. Growing up, we didn't say things like, I love you, or very rarely did we give hugs. And if we did, it was usually pretty awkward. But after I experienced the love of God in my life, I wanted to share that with my family. I started saying, I love you to them regularly and giving them hugs whenever I would see them. And honestly, it was pretty uncomfortable at first. It took some time to get used to it, but it's become a regular thing in our family. It's a step toward each other because God first stepped toward us. 
Maybe you have someone you need to step toward today. Where are the broken relationships in your life? Where is reconciliation needed? Where can that process of reconciliation just be started? Reconciliation is at the heart of who God is. Let his heart guide and form yours in your relationships with other people.